The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show. Real people. Real opinions. Real talk radio. On classic hits. It is Niall Boylan. It is Monday. It's a very strange and eerie Monday. Um, I'm one of the fortunate people who still gets to go to work. I know many of you at home wish you were in work. And many of you at home are quite happy to be at home. And uh, look, let's see how long this lasts. Hopefully not too long, where most people now at this stage, I suppose we're in a kind of lockdown situation. A lot of people said they don't like it to be described as a lockdown, but that's in fact invariably what it is. We're asking people or advising people to do their best not to make any unnecessary journeys. And if you do have to make an unnecessary journey and you do have to meet other individuals in society just for this period of time, we're asking you to be conscious of how close you are to them. Be conscious that you have your hands washed. Be conscious that you clean any surfaces or indeed if you have other people using your car that, you know, wouldn't be doing you any harm, have an old baby wipe or some sort of sterile wipes just to clean the steering wheel if, you know, if a couple of people are using the car. All those kind of things that should make kind of common sense during a very difficult time like this. It is difficult for everybody. We're going to get to talk to different people during the show. We also talk. I want to talk about separated families during this because there are families, of course, who are separated, where husbands and uh, wives have access to children. That can be very difficult at the moment where you have social isolation. And also we're going to talk to an Italian, Italian author who's written a great piece of The Guardian about where they are in Italy versus where we are now. And she feels like it's almost like time travelling, that she can look back at where Italy was two weeks ago, where we are now, and see what's in the future for us, hopefully not as bad as what's happening in Italy, which is quite shocking with over 10,000 people dead. Uh, But the first thing I suppose that we all have to think about is how long is this going to last? And I suppose the answer to that question is how long is a piece of string? But realistically, I suppose getting a cure or something that will help the symptoms or indeed a vaccine is the, I suppose, the solution to all this. And to talk to me a little bit more about that is uh, Dr. David Dowling, who's the principal investigator um, with a development lab in Boston as Children's Hospital and he's from County Wicklow and he's an immunologist. Uh, good afternoon to you, David. How are you? Hi, how are you? Uh, David, look, I've, I've never learned so much in all my life. Uh, in the last two or three weeks, I've spoken to immunologists, virologists. I know more about vaccines. I know more about medication than I think I probably ever need to know in my life. But unfortunately, I don't have all the answers for everybody, no more than I, you probably have, but at least you would be somewhere closer to that and be watching the world and what's going on. And is there any little ray of hope coming for us? Um, yeah, so generally in principle, I think the vaccinology community is, is somewhat in agreement that a vaccine or multiple different vaccine technologies might be needed to try and bring the pandemic under control. Um, and what is promising is that the studies coming out uh, in two areas indicate that a uh, vaccine approaches may be very beneficial in the future. First and foremost, um, non-human primates in some studies uh, out of Chinese groups have shown that when you infect them with the um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, and they become what is known as convalescent, that they've been infected and recovered, it is, it is very hard to reinfect them again with the virus, indicating that the immune response um, is protective. Um, and then secondarily, there are so, no sorry, sorry, just coming to, out now. To, just to put that for yeah, go ahead. So you can only really, what we're basically saying is once you catch it once, the likelihood is that you can't catch it again. Yeah, that seems to be the potential uh, scenario that's uh, unfolding. And then secondarily, um, there are very preliminary studies are very small 
but they are promising um, of people who have been treated uh, with um, a method known as passive immunization. Um, uh, and this is you take blood serum from people who had uh, COVID-19 diagnosed as a disease. They had possibly even severe disease, but they recovered. And we believe that their immune system generated antibodies against the virus. And then those, uh, that serum could be isolated from that person and then injected into another person. Um, and this is an old methodology that was you know, often used uh, in terms of tetanus uh, vaccination and what is known technically as passive immunization, where you isolate antibodies from another person. And there are some very small studies, both coming out of New York and also in France, indicating that you can immunize a person this way okay. and that it can uh, significantly help their outcome. So this indicates, just as a general principle, the vaccine development in this area is very possible. Looking back, I suppose, when we think about childhood vaccinations and different vaccinations that we've had throughout the years, and more recently the HPV and the flu vaccine, the, 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 the principle behind a vaccine is that you, I suppose, insert a small amount or a small dosage of, a li- of a, the live virus. I'm assuming that's what we're looking at here. Is that vaccine then a risk to, say, you know, older people or those with underlying conditions? So well, if a vaccine becomes available, and when, I won't say if, I'll use the, let's be positive and use the word when, when a vaccine becomes available, will that be available to everybody, uh, which will give them, I suppose, some small symptoms, maybe, you know, a little bit of a fever they might get for a couple of days or, or maybe slight symptoms of it. But will it also be available for those who would be over the age of, say, 65, 70 or 79 seems to be the median age at the moment of those who would be at risk? Would it be available for them as well? Um, potentially. So let's take a step back and talk about the different kind of vaccine approaches. So one approach that you talked about is using what is known as a live vaccine. Often these are live attenuated vaccines. Um, a good example is, um, uh, for example, the BCG vaccine that people may be aware of. Oh, the the three dots on your arm, yes. Yeah, we yeah, all yeah. That one, so yeah. many of us got that when we were kids. I think that's gone now, in, in isn't it? Is the, is the BCG gone now? It is, it is isn't it? Uh, no, no it, it's actually becoming to a resurgence right now in many cases. There are some studies indicating that, um, uh, that BCG, not only does it have effects that are beneficial against reducing tuberculosis in the lung, but also it may have effects that enhancing beneficial immune responses. So in certain jurisdictions where mm-hmm. they had BCG uh, prevalence of immunization high, there may be actually lower levels of COVID-19, which is a, a kind of a surprising but interesting um, result. Okay. So, but generally, that's one idea in vaccines. The other is most vaccines actually aren't live anymore. They're usually using technologies where you isolate out some component um, that mimics um, the virus. So in this case, uh, for COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2, you want to stop the virus enter, entering the cells um, of your body. And the way it does this say, in cells in your lung or, or in, your, in your mucosal is that it uses a protein on the surface known as a spike protein. So if you can cause or in, uh, develop a vaccine that in, uh, has um, a way of uh, incorporating a, that protein into the vaccine, then you can induce an antibody uh, against that. And the two uh, technologies basically, that are being employed right now. One of them is very novel, and this is the current clinical trial. It's known as a messenger RNA vaccine. In essence, uh, you uh, inject a small signaling molecule into the muscle of a person, and that signaling signaling molecule gets inside your cells and tells your own cells to become a factory to produce the spike protein. Right, okay. The second way of doing this is to... Um, actually make the protein itself using like classical biotechnology tools where you either using a yeast cell or a, um, a bacteria cell 
you produce the protein and then you isolate it and you inject the protein into people. Um, however, both of those methods have potential um, unknown areas of optimization for elderly, as you were saying. Um, okay. the, 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 you know, so that's some of the work that we're trying to do here at the Precision Vaccines Program at Boston Children's Hospital is mm. to try and de-risk these methodologies so they will work in elders. Okay, because that's obviously a big concern for everybody with this particular virus. I mean, in, in all your years, David, I mean, I'm sure you have never come across something like this. Well, apart from, say, SARS, which thankfully didn't spread across the world the way this particular virus has spread across the world. And I'm sure everybody within your industry is is working tirelessly to see if we can come up with some sort of solution. Because it'll be good recognition not only for them, but it'll be good recognition for the world. And it certainly helps the world at the moment because we're in a very unprecedented, uncharted time. I mean, when do you think, I mean, realistically, how long do vaccines have to be tested for and are those regulations can we manipulate those regulations to speed up the process or would that be a dangerous thing to do so in general the consensus is probably somewhat risky to try and speed up the processes too much and um, partially when when vaccines are tested and, and in, especially in the united states they're the most rigorously tested uh, drugs and interventions that are in, in the market uh, there's probably no other um um, pharmaceutical uh, material that's tested in any uh, rigorous uh, level as similar to vaccine testing. But generally speaking, the way it is tested in, in what is known as a phase one human clinical trial for safety, and then we scale it up to a phase two, which goes into a larger number of people. And so you start usually about 40 individuals, what they're doing now with two sites in Seattle and also in Atlanta. Um, for this, I'm assuming um, what they do, sorry vaccine. to interrupt you, but I'm assuming what they yeah. do is they give a placebo to half the people and the vaccine to the other half and to see what the difference in reaction is. So, yeah, this, this, it's somewhat similar to that. Often yeah. what they're doing, the very first tests are they, they, um, they give a, a placebo, as you said, and they actually test multiple different doses to find out what the level of safety profile would be. So you try and find the sweet spot of having a safety profile. And then the next step is you track those people for several months to make sure that there are no uh, um, uh, signs of, of at least medium to and suggestive of long-term outcomes that are detrimental. And then you scale that up. So you start usually at between 40, 50, 60 people. You scale it up to about 200. And at that point, not only are you testing for safety, you start evaluating what is known as efficacy. So you have a, some kind of correlate, some kind of test, that would indicate that the vaccine is working. And in this case, you measure antibodies against the uh, viral spike protein, which is found on the surface. And usually you want a very high level of those antibodies. Okay. And then you go into a, what is known as a phase three, where you might scale up to a very large level scale trial of thousands of people. And that is in uh, ideally in an area where there's um, a high level of community transmission. So for example, you might trial it in New York and not only do you get evidence that um, you can take blood samples from people and measure antibodies, you can also look at that geographical region and look for a decrease of actual hospital emissions. And and I, suppose, I suppose you also have to look at then the long-term effect to some degree, because obviously the vaccine is important that we try and get it out there as quick as possible, the same with all vaccines, but in saying that you want to look at any long-term side effects. So there, to every vaccine, there may be side effects. We, we were aware of that, of course, but the, you know we have to look at the greater good. Uh, and you have to look, I suppose, as we had with the, the vaccine, was it for the swine flu, the vaccine that came out? Wasn't there a suggestion that there was some people had uh, you know got narcolepsy? I don't know whether that was actually true or whether that was conspiracy theorists, I'm not too sure whether you probably know better than I but in saying that there's always these opportunities for other side effects, I suppose that's the reason for maybe leaving it a little bit longer while you're trialling it 
Yeah, and that, that's partially the reason is that most of the designs of the clinical trials will try and, uh, as best as possible, be statistically powered to capture these rare events. And often they're very rare events, um, and, but you want to at least be knowledgeable about them. Um, and, you know, some of the technologies that are being uh, proposed um, for the uh, current COVID-19 vaccine uh, pipelines, there's actually multiple different ones, but some of them have, have, have never fully gone all the way into large-scale production and been used in tens of thousands, if not millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why you do want to somewhat take uh, the time to try and, and uh, go through these normal safety procedures. And it's partially one of the reasons where what I'm trying to propose in some of our work is to uh, take more pre-existing vaccine technologies, such as the protein-based uh, vaccine systems, but to try and make them work more optimally, to try and improve them. Um, and often the way we do this is we, we try and invent new molecules, known as adjuvants, that can enhance an immune response. And um, so the best example is with flu vaccines. Um, certain flu vaccines don't work optimally in very young infants. Who are, uh, so often children cannot get a vaccine before they're six months of age. And elders who are over 65 years in age usually require a, a larger dose of a vaccine. And even then, uh, it may, uh, of certain vaccines that are unadjuvanted, it may lead to a, a slightly reduced efficacy. And, can and can so I ask you a question in relation, in relation yeah. to what you just said? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I know a lot of people are very intrigued by what you're talking about. When we talk about the COVID versus the regular flu that we're aware of, and I know there are many strains of that, why is it, or do you understand, or, or maybe as an immunologist, have you an understanding of why the COVID seems to be kinder to younger people and certainly uh, more dangerous for older people than the average flu? The flu doesn't seem to take age into consideration as much, but, but COVID certainly does. We're seeing very few cases of, you know, very young children. They tend not to even notice it. In Korea, there was a suggestion that those people between the age of 20 and 35, 80% of them didn't even know they had it. So in, why does that, this particular virus seem to be kinder to the younger generation? So generally speaking, in terms of many infectious diseases, you have a, a distribution which the most affected tend to be the most young and the elder. So even with influenza, seasonal influenza, the people who are most affected and have the worst outcomes tend to be very, very young children and the people who are older, So especially when you're getting into the ages of, of 70 and 80 and above. And so there is an age uh, dynamic, um, technically speaking, like we call this an ontogeny effect, that you know, people at different ages have an effect. In terms of the COVID-19, we have this unusual distribution towards elder populations. Um, and there's a lot of hypothesis starting to be generated about why this may be the case. And first and foremost, um, it is known, and my group and many others in, 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 the, in the world have shown this, is that um, young children have a very, what we call a distinct immune response, especially in what we call the innate immune response, like their quick inflammatory response. And that may um, uh, change how they respond to the virus. Uh, secondarily, there may also be um, competition for viruses in young children. Um, so uh, if there are other viruses competing um, at the same time with inside the nose or lungs, um, that may reduce the severity. Um, and then there also may be lifestyle and medical issues um, that have uh, effects. So, for example, there are certain medical treatments, including for hypertension and others, that may increase the um, uh, receptors that are used, that are the frequency of the expression of those receptors that the virus uses to enter. 
um, uh, the body, for example, or the cells. Mm-hmm. And so these may be kind of some of the hypotheses. And then the other aspect as well is that generally speaking, many people who um, uh, suffer some of the, the more worst outcomes end up having very high rates of inflammatory responses. And infants and young children often have a very different type of inflammatory response. Okay. Um, and so the, these are some of the underlying conditions. However, it does make a challenge then is that, as we can see, is that infants and elders have a different type of response and we have to take this under consideration when we're in, inventing treatments uh, or anti-inflammatory treatments that uh, have been proposed or yes. antiviral drug treatments or vaccines. Okay. And, but know, I suppose ultimately, we need to do now. ultimately, what we really want is herd immunity. And, you know, so we want, obviously, there's a percentage of the population which are going to get it uh, and catch the virus. They will build their own antibodies. And, and hopefully there will be a test along, I believe, in the next couple of weeks where we can actually test from blood to see if people have the antibodies. In other words, they might have had it and didn't even know they had it. So we want to get a percentage of the population that will have had it. And that's the purpose of the, the kind of lockdowns at the moment is to slow down that spread uh, until we get to a point where we get a vaccine and we can vaccinate everybody, preferably those who haven't had it first. Yes, that's that's ultimately one of the plans. Ideally, the the, the perfect scenario would be to try and minimize the infections with the COVID-19 infectious rate as much as possible, because even though um, there is a distribution that uh, as you get older, um, the outcomes may be more severe. And even people who are in their uh, 20s and 30s um, have a high rate of uh, inflammatory issues and respiratory failure. Um, if they develop severe COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, that strategy may work in the short to medium term, and it's the best one we have. The, the, the in, uh, instruction or the, and, and, and creating a large population with herd immunity, where the ideal scenario, in my opinion, will be doing that through a very large-scale immunization and uh, worldwide immunization uh, plan. And that, um, that, and could, take a, that could take a certain amount of time too, David, because even... Yeah, because uh, we're, what's, we're what's our best guess? multiple vaccines. What's our, what's our, and I know you're not... Uh, you can't see the future, but what's our best guess from your professional opinion as to when, you know, the first day that some doctor's office might be able to, you know, stick a needle in us and inject us and, and vaccinate us against us? When do you think that time will be? Will it be in the next eight months? Will it be in the next year? When, when do you th- predict that might be? So most likely what we'll probably see is potentially in about uh, nine to 12 months from now, we may be in a scenario where the first type of vaccine technologies might be available on a very limited basis. Um, and most likely, you know, for example, let's give you the United States as an example, um, is that uh, Modernist Technology, this is a company based at Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is working in collaboration with the NIH to develop this mRNA vaccine. And they may be able to give a small number of individuals who are at most risk, including healthcare workers, maybe uh, personnel in, in government settings, etc., who need to be able to maintain critical functions. And, and, and then a year after that, when you start having scalability, you'll, you could see a scenario where it could be started to expand it into other critical areas. However, for, for like full... For the general population, yeah. For yeah. the general population, we're going to have to create something like what we have for the seasonal flu vaccine. And in this case, there well, well, I like think the uptake 14, will be a lot quicker, to be honest with you. I think people yeah, will be exactly, quite anxious to but, get us. Yeah. yeah, but in essence, how we do this is there's no one company. There are like 14 different flavors of vaccines. And some of those vaccines are used in just adults. Some of them are used in just infants. Some of them are used in just elders. 
Um, and there are multiple different companies that produce them because there's such a need for like immunizing hundreds of millions of people. No one company or one group may have the full capacity. So what we're going to have to do, it'll take possibly two to three years to fully build up that infrastructure. Um, so, and, so and then David, each of those individual vaccines will have to be tested for safety okay. uh, by themselves. So in your professional opinion, when we talk about two to three years before the general population, we're in a situation where the general population, just like we can get the flu vaccine or we can get HPV or whatever it happens to be, we're looking at two to three years in your professional opinion that before that happens. What do we do in the interim? Because in the interim, we have a situation where, and I'm not putting the economy before lives, not for any minute. I mean, I obviously care more about lives than I do about the economy, but that's all equally important as well. At what point do you believe we might be able to get back to some sort of level of normality? Is there a day where we will have maybe a home test kit where we could test ourselves and say, well, I've already had it, so I'm safe to go out to the community now? Is that probably the best way of doing things? It will have to be probably true baby steps over many months um, and potentially even longer. Um, but as you said, it'll be a combination of tools that will be developed while we try and develop the vaccine. So in the background, as you said, there will be what is known as serological tests. These are tests that test for antibody levels. And if a person can determine that they have become positive, your risk may be lower for um, being able to be, to be reinfected. Um, and that might be an indication that you can, you know, potentially have more broader interactions with individuals mm-hmm. in your community. In addition, uh, these methodologies such as convalescent serum transfer, this is the plasma of antibody-derived uh, plasma that are now being trialed, and that potentially could be helpful in mitigating the worst um, uh, burdens on the healthcare system if we were able to develop a stockpile of material that could be employed in areas um, and then, you know, technologies are also going to be helpful in terms of trying to, you know, track and trace uh, movements, to try and minimize uh, contacts of individuals. Um, and then, you know, the, in the very, very short term, um, the redeployment of known safe uh, drugs that may have... Well, I was going to ask you about that. I, I don't know whether that's your yeah. field and your area, but I know there's been uh, testing with different types of malaria um, medication and um, arthritis medication and combinations of both. Does, are you aware of any of those are seem to be successful? Donald Trump seems to be pinning his hopes on this malaria tablet. Uh, do you think that's, there's any hope for that? So in the short term, what's good about that approach is many of the drugs that people are looking at are ones that have proven to be safe. So you can basically redeploy them very quickly because we, we have a very good track record and history of the, uh, people using them. Um, however, the, the, the power statistically of, of um, showing that they have a direct effect on reducing um, the severity of the disease or, you know, enhancing immune response in some way, which can and can um, make it uh, less likely that you have worse outcomes or even that they can block the virus growing. And that has been shown with some HIV drugs potentially as well. Uh, these still have to go through what is known as randomly controlled trials, where you have to have enough people tested that you would have enough uh, data to indicate that they would work. Mm-hmm. Um, and even those may take a number of months. And there's probably hundreds of those trials going on throughout the world. Um, and so in, probably in about three to six months, um, some of those therapies, whatever ones pop out to be the best, may start to be applied at that point.
Yeah, because I mean, when we had the swine flu uh, reinfection, I know the swine flu has been around for a long time, but back in 2016, I think it was, or 15, yeah. with a kind of reinfection, Tamiflu came on the market very quickly. And now I, I think, as far as I know, Tamiflu was already available before that, but that did seem to help the symptoms uh, and to reduce the mortality, or to increase their decrease the mortality yeah. rate. And that's going to be a good case. There will be a yeah. number of drugs that hopefully will come on, but ultimately the prevention of the virus entering your body and, 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 uh, um, and then causing a COVID-19 um, disease can really only be stopped by the existence of your own antibodies that could be induced by a vaccine. And, and so, um, Yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and so that's where it's kind of... The, 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 we, we, I've been trying to highlight this in, in, in various different settings is that mm. we have to start mentally preparing ourselves for this scenario over the next... Um, we have to really talk about in the coming years. Of course. And, and just finally, you know, expert, I've heard numerous experts, you know, and every expert has different opinions, uh, as we all know, but people have different theories. Um, this particular COVID-19 virus, like the flu and like swine flu and like all other viruses that we're familiar with, how long do you believe it'll be with us? On average, how long do these viruses, I mean, even though we'll have vaccines, you know, to the general population, possibly the next two years, do you believe this will be with us for decades? It's hard to know right now. Like the, 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 there's two or three examples. So, for example, the, the 2003 SARS uh, epidemic that occurred and um, kind of burnt itself out and was geographically contained um, in, in, in kind of uh, the regions where it started. The same with the 2009 MERS outbreak. Um, uh, however, this one is so widespread in terms of um, uh, geographical locations there is a distinct possibility that it may start to become a seasonal vaccine. And it's just totally unpredictable, or sorry, a seasonal infection. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's very unpredictable if that would be for one season, two seasons, or might go on for many, many, many years. Um, But this is one of these areas where we just don't know. And the only way to really uh, begin to address this is to increase the scientific efforts uh, across all domains. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed. It's been very educational listening to what you had to say, Dr. David no Dowling. Dowling um, uh, thank you for coming on the air today. All right. Uh, David, by the way, as you know, living in Boston, but originally from Ireland, uh, from um, Wicklow, as far as I know, he lives or lived, uh, and over in Boston and doing quite well over there uh, in relation to vaccines and kind of knows his stuff clearly. Now, loads and loads of texts coming in, by the way, um, and loads of WhatsApps, um, people very interested and intrigued to know, I suppose, when we're going to have some level of immunisation. Um, I'm looking here, there's loads of questions and people have loads of questions and I wish I could answer all your questions, but I can't. There are many different stories and many different things to talk about in our first week of what is essentially, in, in some, I, I don't like using the word lockdown either, but that's essentially what we're asking you to do willingly and consensually. We're asking, that's what the government is saying, we're asking you to do it by consent. Nobody wants to see guards telling people to get off the streets. Nobody wants to get fines and nobody wants to do it that way. We want you to just do it wing, willingly. And the more we do it, uh, the slower this will be the process, and it means that our health service can deal with it. Um, And there are many different aspects to this, and I listen to some of the aspects, by the way, on different radio stations and television stations. I've been watching some of the sad stories. One of the ones that really got to me was uh, the story of people who are dying, um, not just from COVID-19. I heard a very sad story of a woman who is dying of cancer, and she only has a very short time to live, and she has no visitors. Her husband can't even go to see her. And that woman is probably going to die on her own. Um, and I think that's really sad because when all this ends, hopefully in a few months and we get back to some level of normality again, 
they'll never get that time back in their lives. I've heard other stories of people who are going to have their first baby, for example, and uh, their birthing partner can't be there. It's a kind of different scenario. I don't think it's quite as serious. I don't understand why the birthing partner would want to be there. You know, but people had babies for many years without somebody being there for them. And you will get to see your baby as soon as they come home. So I don't think that's quite the same as somebody dying. And I wouldn't put it on the same level of importance. But to them, it's important. And um, there's other people who miss their grandparents, who miss their parents, who miss their sisters, their brothers. And I suppose we start to value the people in our lives more so now that we can't get to see them sometimes. And I think that they're all really important things that I want to talk about today. But I also want to talk about separated families. And should children be allowed to move between houses if they're in separated families? Because as we speak, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of separated families in this country where people have been separated. They've got young children and the children might be with dad on a Saturday or mom on a Sunday or whatever it happens to be. And there was a, a post that we spotted on Facebook over the weekend. Uh, my son's dad and I have joint custody and have half time each uh, uh, for the, uh, 11 years how can we social distance in this time my son is going from house to or uh, from his house to mine uh, we don't want him to choose a house to quarantine in I haven't heard anyone talking about this on the radio or anywhere else uh, well it is an interesting one and I know some of you are going to say the child should simply stay with one of the parents but for many reasons this not always might be possible by the way and it might not be fair and the child will miss the other parent and will want to see their mother or their father. And it's cruel to stop a child from seeing their parent. They have a right to see their parent. So should children be allowed to move from house to house if they're in that situation? In an article in the Irish Independent on Saturday, a leading judge has told uh, divorced and separated parents to allow children to use video call apps such as Skype and Zoom if child access arrangements can't be maintained during the COVID crisis. And the judge said it was acceptable for parents to temporarily vary the access arrangements provided this was done by agreement. And consent, of course, is a very important word here today. He also said that where a child does not get to spend normal access time with a parent, the court would expect contact to be maintained regularly by video calls or over the phone. Now, Judge Daly's intervention came after a prominent family law solicitor, Keith Walsh, revealed last week that the crisis was being used by some parents wrongly to deny their former partner access to their children. Now, guidance issued by the Law Society's Child and Family Law Community highlighted the importance of a common sense approach uh, prevailing in relation to access in the current climate. And it said that parents must be vigilant to ensure they communicate positively with each other and make sure that they keep each other updated re- uh, regarding the health of the child and their own health as well, it said. Now, and I think it's important, are you in that situation? Or maybe you're in an awkward situation of some description, maybe not necessarily around a child or child access, but is it unfair to refuse to let a child to see their parent who does not live with them? Because of the COVID-19. Maybe you're in that situation. Or maybe you're in another situation where you have an elderly parent who's sick in hospital and you can't get to see them. Maybe your wife is having a baby and you can't get to see her either. Or maybe she's in hospital, uh, has complications maybe, and you're meant to be there. Uh, all those kind of things happening. Are there, there are other complications around this and we all understand those complications that you need to get to see somebody but you're not allowed. Uh, maybe you're in that situation. Let us know. The number is 087-188-0008. You can WhatsApp or text. Peter on Classic Kids. How are you doing, Peter? How's it going, Noel? You can just give us that 1200 now. I'll <laughs> just be done with it. It'll just save me doing it at, at 20 past yeah, one, won't it? Save you? All the hassles. <laughs> and what would you spend it on? I'd give you 200 for giving it to me for the run the fourth place. <laughs> what about Lena and Ashling? Well, they'd have to get a cut as well. So two, four, six, and leaves me with, what, 600? Yeah, that'll do me. We split it 50 50, and I'll share it with the girls. 
Yeah, no, what? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the answer is, no, we're joking. Okay, so, <laughs> so Peter, I mean, look, it is. there's lots of different combinations of problems at the moment because of this social isolation. And I suppose one of the big problems is definitely, you know, this access to children. It's definitely seeing loved ones in hospital who are ill. It's definitely, you know, uh, getting being there for the birth of a baby. But, I mean, obviously the, the access to children is a problem, isn't it? Because there's so many disenfranchised families and so many families split up around the country. Yeah, well, it's hard enough to get access to children as it is for some um, single-parent uh, families. Mm-hmm. And when they eventually do get access for something like this to stop it, is um it's very hard. Uh, I know there's some people that don't care; they don't give a rat's. But I know there's people that genuinely do care, and they want to spend every minute they can with their children. Yeah. And I think if if they were if they're within whatever two kilometres, I think it's essential that a mother and a father um are able to see their children at this time, and anything that can be done to help them see each other um should be. Now, if the health and safety of the child comes forth, I'm sure the parent might be able to say, you know what, I understand, but will you let me FaceTime them or, you know, will you let me even drop a present at the door for them to let them know that I'm thinking about them and I haven't forgot them? Like, there's, there's that, there has to be ways around it. Um, yeah. If someone's living within two kilometres of each other, well, then, by all means, they should still have access to the child. Oh, by the way, can, can we clarify the two-kilometre rule? Because Leo Varadka clarified this this morning, because people were very concerned about the two-kilometre rule. You are allowed to go more than two kilometres from your house, if you need yeah. to, if it's a necessary journey. For example, if you need to go to a, to a shopping centre or to a Tesco's or a, a larger shop than your local one, you're allowed to go more than two kilometres in your car. That's not a problem. That, there is, you know, that's not part of the restrictions. The restrictions on the two kilometres is if you want to go for a walk. So if you want to go for a local walk, you can't go more than two kilometres. If you need to go to the shop or need to go to a medical appointment or need to go to a pharmacy or need a necessary journey to see a loved one or whatever it happens to be, you are you can go over the two kilometres. Well, then that's, that's what I mean. That's mm. a necessity to see a loved one. That's a necessity to pick up a child and take him for a weekend, um, him or her. And there should be no restrictions whatsoever then on somebody going, picking up that child and bringing them back to their house. Okay. There should be nothing to stop well, that I suppose that the restriction is that you might have, uh, let's say, a mum who has given a father access to a child, and she might say, well, I don't know who you've been in contact with. You're still in work, or maybe he works in the healthcare industry, or maybe he works somewhere else, or in a business that's open, and I don't want my child with you bringing it back to this house. And that, this is the kind of arguments that are going on at the moment, when, when a child is going from one house to another. Yeah, but I, I don't think anything should get in the way of family other than health you know i don't think anything should stop a father or mothers from seeing that child because they need both parents at this time it's a time of uncertainty it's a time where people don't think they're safe and i believe that a mother and a father play a very important role and if the father wants to see the child the father should be able to see the child and if the mother wants to see the child so should the mother um, can, I, can I ask you a question, Peter? It just seems to have you on the air. And I'm going to come to Lisa in a second. You being a very religious man, I know uh, you you preach yourself. Um, yep. What's your view from a religion? Because you know, I obviously I don't, I'm not a religious person at all. 
Oh, you were quoting scripture a few weeks back I wasn't dabbling. I was quoting something which I thought was actually it was a, it was a bit of moral guidance in relation to the family. I think it was, which I thought was very accurate. It doesn't mean I necessarily believe in religion. It was a parable or something I quoted. But anyway, Peter, yeah, what, what's the religious view on this? You know, if God is the Almighty, uh, according to people who are religious, and God is the one who creates the heaven and earth, and God is the one mm. who creates these scenarios. What's the reasonable excuse for God wanting to kill a lot of people? Well, I believe there's a purpose behind what's going on. Um, as you see, a lot of families are spending a lot more time together. I understand people have died and the health situation that's going on. But this illness, you know, people don't know whether it was a man-made illness or what it was. But my understanding and, and my hope is this, that there's a purpose behind why this is going on. And maybe it's to get back to the way things used to be, where shops closed on a Sunday and people spend time with their families and where people value their families now. It's, it's putting a lot more things into perspective now than before this when everybody was just running around and social media was all... You know, there's, there's a purpose behind everything that happens. And you can go back to World War One. Why did God let that happen? World War Two. Like well, the answer was always God works in mysterious ways. And you know, if we're to believe in God, God works in mysterious ways. So you believe that this, the the benefit of this, and and let's be clear, there's no benefit to people being sick and dying. We understand that, no, right? No. But the, but, but you believe that the one thing that we are learning from this is that family are important, our social circles are important, our children are important, and the time we spend together is important. Look at, look at, just look what happened with politics, not getting off your subject. Like things that weren't allowed to be passed before this happened. And look at all of the things that have been passed since this happened. You know, money for uh, healthcare that wasn't being put into healthcare. Like so many things have happened for the right reasons, for the positive reasons that wouldn't have happened if this didn't take place. In other words, we can find the money when we really needed it, is the point you're making. Exactly. And the, if everybody has putting into, putting things into perspective now, um, families are getting closer. You know, a lot of positive things are happening through this. And I'd never, like, death and family and whatever's going on around the world, I, I don't, like, say God is the one that's killing people. But I believe there's a purpose behind what has taken place. Okay, well, we'll say it. Let me get back on to what we're talking about anyway. And I want to go to Lisa here on Classic Kids. How are you doing, Lisa? Hey, Niall. How's it going? Uh, Lisa, it's a difficult situation for any parents who are separated or maybe living apart and they've got, you know, a couple of little small kids and they have access orders and how do they implement that? But what should happen? Well, we, we were only talking to uh, yourself and I a couple of weeks ago there about who was looking after kids while we went out to work. We were worried about that. This week, we're worried about how much we're going to see them. Uh, how much, uh, are par- you know, they're, they're, they're going to be around the parents. And you're talking about separated parents yeah. uh, in, a, in a situation here. Well, I think that it's a child's health is, 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 should come first. So basically what my opinion is, if the child is with the mother, stay there. Don't move. Stay there. And then talk to your dad on the phone. You know, he can see you through. It's, uh, the technology today is amazing. You can talk to anybody around the world. Uh, no one was expecting to be up against um, a disease like this or whatever, you know, yeah. and it's nobody's fault. So basically, you've got to uh, put your heads together here. Parents that are separated out there, call out to us all. 
leave the child where they are, leave them safe. There's no point in bringing a child out and putting them from one house to another and putting them in jeopardy to make them sick and then bring it back to their mums or dads. When you, you, when you say put them in jeopardy, in most cases, the father will be on his own in his house and the mother will be on her own in her house. Now, I don't know if there's boyfriends or girlfriends, but but in most cases, there will, there, there'll be two family homes. So it's, it's a bit unfair then to say which one you're choosing because that's unfair to the other person, isn't it? Not really, no, because it, the, the, my, my, my point I'm trying to make here is the, the child has to be moved. So say you live... Say so you lived in Tala and I lived in Hoth, maybe? Yeah, okay. Okay. So I have to travel. Wishful thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you lived in Hoth. Hey, how do you know where I live? <laughs> I don't know, Lisa. You live in Hoth. <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just get a few hundred thousand more now to be living in Hoth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a far stretch from Tala to Hoth, but go on, yeah. I have to be posh now. Yeah, she, I think she thinks she won the lottery there, Peter, yeah. We <laughs> think that she was going to stay in house more than Palace. She could have said Kulak, you know what I mean? The house. No. <laughs> I passed through Kulak to get yeah. to house. Yeah, why don't we go Kalini? All right, so. I give everybody a wave. Yeah, the, mother, the mother lives in Ballier and the father lives in Kalini, all right? So. <laughs> yeah. All right, go on, oh, go on. So anyway, we have to come out and then obviously travel and. You know, it's just, it's a long way to tell it from host, you know. Yeah, it is. And <laughs> <laughs> it's an awful long way. <laughs> and we have to, uh, you know, I just... By the way, no disrespect to the people living in Tallaght, and I just point that out, by the way, but clearly your houses are not as valuable as those living on Hoth Hill, all right? <laughs> I didn't say anything. I just said I live just you know, right, yeah. trying to make No, no I, I get the, I get the point on a serious note. I get the point that you're making, but I equally understand what Peter's saying too. That it's important that a child has the right to be with both parents, and I and I understand the health implications of that. There's nothing in the guidelines, so to speak, directly about that. But the, a judge has said there should be an element of fairness, and he said that uh, basically access orders. He's not saying they go out the window, but they are. You know, use your common sense around them. Okay, well, let's put it this way. So the mother and father are separated, right? Yeah. If they get on in any way at, at all, why not to bring the father to the house and the three of them or the five of them or the four of them be together? Just for the time that we're in now because it's such a terrible crisis. Nobody expected it. And it's knocked us off for six. So why can't we all just pull together, stay together and be safe? Okay, but do me a favour. Stay there because Maureen, you're in this situation, Maureen, are you? Are you there, Maureen? Hello? Yeah, hi, Maureen. How are hi, you? Hi, how are you? Yeah, you're kind of in the middle of that kind of situation at the moment. Yes, um, but it's not a problem. Right, okay. So how do you get around the problem? So what I would suggest to people is you've got a child-first policy right. at all times. Okay. It's the children have to be taught of before you. Yep, I agree. So my ex and myself never got on. <laughs> okay. We didn't break up about... Ten years ago. All right, that's your um, personal business. Yeah. Okay. I would never have deprived their children, the children, of access to their other parents. Yeah. While we didn't get on with each other, we don't get on with each other. He loves his kids. Yeah. And he wasn't going to be a threat to them. He may have been a threat to me, but he wasn't a threat to them. Okay. Well, he was. And well, you were a threat to each other because your relationship wasn't the working. Yeah. Extended family. Yeah. Like the grandparents and their cousins and everything. Mm-hmm. So I would always have allowed them access. Right, okay. So so you would never have used access. Okay, so what, what happens in that situation? So so what happened to us was that one child self-isolated with me. 
Yeah. And one child says isolated with him. Oh, okay. But that's a kind of so good. Like and and do you swap at any stage? So decided he wanted to go down to be with his grandparents and his cousins. He's younger. Okay. So he went down there and he stayed down there and my daughter is with me. Okay, and there's no swapping, so you don't swap at any stage. No, no, no okay, okay. No, no, because... Well, that's okay if you've got two kids and you can share them, but if there's only one child, what do you do then, Maureen? would have had um, um, immunocompromised problems. Okay, but that, that's a bit of a complication. I understand that. But, if, but if, Maureen, if you've only got one child, it's all well and good if you've got two kids and you can come to that arrangement. But if you've only got one, what do you do then? You decide which one is the safest. Um, from access, in other words, not bumping into people and being in contact with more people. So which one has less contact with people? Is that what you're saying? I would have thought that would be the best thing to do. And I'm sure that if you really love your children, you would decide on the basis of that. You would, like, come to a compromise, even if you hated each but, other. But, well, yeah, but this could go on. Yeah, but Maureen, this could go on for months. Oh, so you'll find the place that's the safest place and you keep himself isolated there. Right, okay. What about that, Peter? So whichever is the safest place, i.e. the one that has less yes. contact with people? If both families are in isolation, both families are safe. Like, if you're taking a journey from Hope to Tallaght, both, <laughs> both families are in isolation. You know what I mean? And so... Do you live in Hope, Peter? Peter, do you live, do you live in Hope, Peter? <laughs> I wish I did. You never know. If you keep listening in the next half an hour, you could win yourself 1,200 quid for the hip bit. You know, you, yeah, you could be one step closer to Holt. And pay the rent for a week in a house. Well, you won't even get that. You're having a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't get a day's rent in Holt for, for that. A day's fishing. I'd get a day's fishing out of it. You might, just about. You'd get a well, day what? trip. <laughs> if... if if both families are isolating 100%, okay. if one of the family members is a health worker and is exposed, I understand the safety of the child always comes first. But if both families are in isolation and are staying at home, there's no reason why the child can't go from house to house. You know, and the child's safety is forced. But if both families are in isolation, there's no reason why the child can't go from house to house. Okay, loads of people text the game of the way. Somebody says, Hout, how posh. But Tala has free Formula One cars flying around every night. <laughs> Joyriding, says Damien in Dublin. Yeah, well, there you go. There's the joys of living in Tala. We have fishing boats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, listen, thanks. Thanks, uh, Lisa, and thanks to Maureen, uh, and thanks to Peter, by the way, on that. A lot of people disagree with Peter's views and religious views on it, but so look, if you're religious or religious, that's what you believe. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with everything Peter said. I'm not religious, but I do believe that during this very difficult time for everybody we are discovering how important our families are and how important our relationships is and how important it is I suppose to just to be hygienic and to have respect for other people I think we all should during this difficult time have respect for each other Real people Real opinions Real talk radio The multi award winning Niall Boylan show Classic Hits